Hello, and welcome to Community Calls, our ongoing effort to keep the community updated with COVID-19 and other health-related issues during the pandemic. I am Dr. Panagis Galiatsatos, an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a physician in pulmonary and critical care. Thank you for joining us. So I actually want to start off with um, just a thank you to our listeners. Um, Kimberly and I are always touched by you all. And in the span of two weeks, you all uh, wished me a happy birthday, which is incredibly kind. Uh, might because of my colleague pointing that out. And last week, um, you all recognized I, I went to a funeral, uh, went to the funeral for my uncle, and many of you reached out. So um, I, I truly appreciate it. I, I cannot thank you all enough. Um, Kimberly and I, um, feel like we've become a family with you all, and, and it's just even more evident when we get those emails. So thank you again. And with that said, you know, this tra- helps me transition from family to recognizing you all as frontline individuals, right? Uh, Dr. G and Kimberly always emphasize that frontline individuals are those who can promote health and prevent disease. Doctors and nurses, we are your last line of defense. So with that in mind, take the information we're going to learn again today, help spread it, disseminate it out into your community. If you've begun to realize a pattern, we're getting a lot of experts to come and join these calls around the vaccines, right? And it's important for us because, you know, there isn't one expert, there's a variety of them that we bring on with great points of view for a variety of aspects towards the vaccine in order to provide comfort for you all to be confident. So you won't just say, I heard it from one doctor, you've heard it from many physicians and scientists And that's important for us because we recognize the vaccine as being one of the key tools to pull us out of this pandemic, allowing us for some level of normalcy. So highly excited. Today, what I'm going to do is actually go over the numbers as we usually do. And then what I'm going to transition to is actually giving a COVID-19 update, but really from the community. And a praise I want to do that's come about because of these calls. Uh, Kimberly and I recognize a lot of congregations reach out to us to talk to them kind of in a more intimate manner about um, reopening and so forth. So I want to give a few examples of what we've done over the last, almost the last six to eight weeks. Um, Kimberly and I um, uh, have kind of summarized it. So I want to give you all a bit of insight. And of course, if you're part of a community, whether it's a faith-based organization or a housing unit, or just maybe your family, and you want to be bold and say, hey, Kimberly and Dr. G, can you guys do an intimate meeting with us? We'll take you up on it. It means the world to us in order to be able to promote this science so you all feel comfortable with it and go out and help us end the pandemic. So with that said, let's go ahead and dive into the numbers. So where are we globally? In the world, we have 122,533,859 cases. Total deaths, we are at 2 million 705,812, giving us a mortality rate of 2.2%. Here in the U.S., 30,365,111 cases, with deaths at 552,556, giving us a mortality rate of 1.8%. Here in the state of Maryland, we are at 397,898, with deaths at 7,000. 947, giving us a mortality rate of 2%. And, of course, our newest edition, talking about vaccination rates, 
Um, we were requested um, to specifically focus on Maryland for the time being, um, just to give an impression since a lot of our listeners are coming from here. They want to know what's happening in Maryland, not just the uh, general U.S. So in the, uh, in the state of Maryland, where we are at is that 13.2% of eligible adults are fully vaccinated, with one with 23.6% of eligible adults being um, uh, having received one shot, right? So uh, of the Pfizer, Moderna, that are two-shot vaccine. That's great. That's great. We, we need more to do, more to go out there and promote the messaging of the vaccine to help us increase the amount of immunity out in the community so we can all begin to kind of reemerge into some resemblance of our prior lives, right, 2019 and before. So one of the things I want to take a moment, right, we, we'll, we'll dive into the science, but I don't want to forget also science is tied in with humanity. And, you know, the last year of doing this, I'm not sure if, if you all recognize, we've celebrated our year anniversary of these calls. And these, things, these calls have been kind of the bedrock for Kimberly and I to realize how we can do so much to promote COVID-19 resources and information to you all. And what we've learned from you all as well, we continue using it in our everyday work with other organizations and so forth. These calls have been fundamental, and these calls have always led into other actions. And our favorite ones have been the ones with the congregations, where we uh, meet intimately through Zoom and hear them out. And when I say this, it's because while the CDC has general recommendations, the challenge with the general recommendations is how to apply it to very specific situations. For instance, adult baptism and the Baptist faith. How do we best approach that since someone has to be emerged underwater? What do we do with the face mask at that moment? We were asked these questions to our Jewish uh, colleagues who discussed what to do with a breast. So let me give you a few examples that we tackled the last two weeks that I wish to share and also make the point if you want us to come to your congregation, to your organization and talk about the vaccine to what does reopening mean uh, based off the guidelines by your city or state, we are happy to help. So on Wednesday night, we were at Ray of Hope. Give a quick shout out if any of our listeners uh, are there, are listening right now, where Dr. Zunman and I tackled the vaccine conversations. It was great questions that we received from the community. And Ray of Hope is fascinating because they also have a daycare. So the conversations there centered around pediatric vaccines or specifically how teachers who have been vaccinated can work with the children. So we tackled these questions in real time, both from Dr. Zellman and myself. Earlier this week, we met with Beth Israel, a synagogue in Northwest Baltimore, who wanted to have conversations specifically around Passover and how to safely reopen the congregation if allowed by the state to allow their congregants to come in. Now, this was incredibly important because, you know, a lot of our holidays through all the faiths have been kind of very much robbed uh, in the sense of usual practices over the last year from Ramadan to Easter of last year and so forth. So right now, the, uh, our Jewish colleagues, the conversation was, what does it look like? How many patients, uh, patients, how many congregants can we bring in? and so forth. And these were great questions that they were asking, especially as they centered on topics of, do we still do contact tracing when people come in, right? And from last week's conversation, you all know that we still encourage it greatly, even as the vaccine 
um, the vaccine rates in the community continue to rise. It's going to be highly important, as Dr. Watson laid out last week. So these were great conversations to have in an intimate basis with one of our uh, church partners and one of our synagogue partners. And we had one more congregation. This was also, uh, these were Catholic uh, uh, churches actually out in Michigan. So one of our colleagues through these phone calls uh, approached us and so forth. And of course, we talked about the large Christian holiday coming up, and that was Easter. So the conversations right now was how to construct safe um, uh, congregations, safe areas of worship, if Easter is allowed to be celebrated within the church in the state of Michigan. And Kimberly and I recognize we've tackled this question a lot, right, for reopenings in the past before, how to set up six-foot barriers, how to go ahead and kind of discuss how to give out um, uh, communion all the way to um, receiving um, donations, right, as the care basket goes around. So we reemphasize those same conversations as well. So I say this because to the listeners out there, not only is disseminating the information that you learn only as our program with Kimberly and I important, valuable, and we think it's exactly what gives you the confidence to go out, but at the same time recognize that we are here for you all if you want to have your own intimate meeting with us for your congregation, for your housing units or your family, let us know. The reason why we take this much time to reach out to all of you is exactly what it said, I think, about a week ago. To um, uh, We had an article that made its way of how to talk to people about getting a vaccine. And I made it clear, making time to speak to the community is important to every doctor and nurse because come to our hospitals, see the fact that we're making beds in the hallways for patients, right? That's what we're trying to prevent. And it goes back to the messaging I said earlier on, as I said, on every, on every week, you all are are our front line, promoting health, preventing disease in a time of COVID. So that was the congregational summary. Kimberly, if you want to add anything to that, because I know you're a big fan of them, and I think you're a fan of them because we get to meet with amazing people throughout the country, but you also love their cleverness, right? Any comments on these meetings that we have? Did you, I'm sorry, did you mention the truck? No, I did not. I, That's what I was going to hope you, because you oh, love mentioning okay. that, yeah. Yes. So one of our um, local pastors came up with a very creative idea to handle the um, collections by putting the, uh, a basket on like a children's monster truck that um, operated by remote control and have that go up and down the aisles and the pews and the sanctuary. So I thought that was an incredibly amazing idea, very creative. So. Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to echo that, uh, you know, it's been um, fantastic, amazing, a lot of interest, um, happy to help, a lot of words spreading around from even different states calling in. Um, so, uh, yeah, so like uh, Dr. G said, if you're still going virtual and like to um, consider reopening, please reach out to me or go through the MGG email and we can schedule a Zoom session. Perfect. Now, Kimberly? We have an amazing guest, right? We, we always have amazing guests here. We, we, we really enjoy all of our speakers, but we have Dr. Durbin today. So do you want to uh, introduce Dr. Anna Durbin, a professor in the Division of Global Disease and Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins, to our listeners, and let's start kicking things off with some um, questions. Actually, let's also make sure Dr. Durbin is here. Dr. Durbin, are you here? 
Hi, good morning. Yes, I'm here and very much looking forward to the discussion. Perfect. Kimberly, over to you, my friend, for the introduction. Well, I, I kind of think you already did. <laughs> so, uh, again, uh, Dr. Anna Durbin is a professor in the Division of Global Disease and Epidemiology. Uh, can't say that too many times, and control at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. So like Dr. G says, uh, welcome, and just thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. So, um, you know, I always like to start off with some basics for any of our new listeners to our cause. Um, but actually, before we do that, can you just do a brief introduction on the type of, of work that you do? Sure. So I'm an infectious diseases internal medicine trained physician, and when I finished fellowship, I spent five years at the National Institutes of Health here in Maryland um, working on vaccine development. And then in 1999, I came to Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health to continue my work on vaccines, and I've been working on vaccine development and evaluation now for almost 21 years, really specializing in um, vaccines for uh, mosquito-borne diseases like dengue and West Nile, which we had here in Maryland, uh, as well as malaria. And then for the past year, like so many, I think, in the medical profession, have really focused on um, COVID-19 and, in particular, COVID-19 vaccine evaluation. So I've been working with colleagues at the Center for Immunization Research uh, on evaluation of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine and the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. Thank you so much for that. Sorry, go ahead, Dr. G. Oh, no, no, I was going to say thank you to uh, this, this radio programming, <laughs> uh, Kimberly. Um, so I, I, let me start, let's go ahead and dive into the questions. And I know Kimberly's getting uh, flooded with community questions, so we will we'll, we'll go through the ones that we have at the moment, and then Kimberly will turn it over to you for some community questions. But Dr. Durbin, you know, um, one of the questions we get frequently asked is there's so many vaccines. We've got Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and then internationally there's others. Can you take a brief moment to describe what makes them different and why does that matter? Sure. Thank you for the question. So I think this is a very exciting time for vaccines because what this COVID pandemic has really done is um, brought forth vaccines that we've never had before. So we have the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine, which are something that we call messenger RNA vaccines. And essentially how those vaccines work is the genetic code, the messenger RNA of the COVID-19 spike protein, which is what your body recognizes and makes antibodies and other parts of the immune system to defend itself against. Um, the vaccine is comprised of that genetic mRNA material, and it's contained in a fat bubble. And when we give it to you by a shot, what happens is your own um, machinery, your own cells make that spike protein and present it to your body's immune system so that you make an immune response that is very, very similar to the type of immune response you would make if you were actually infected with COVID-19. And the beauty of that is we have, um, we've had many different vaccines over the years that you're all familiar with. Some are what we call live vaccines, which means that we take a virus and we weaken it like measles vaccine and mumps vaccine. Those are live, va live vaccines. And we can't give those to many people with different conditions where their immune system can't control 
the vaccine itself. And, and with these mRNA vaccines, we can give these vaccines to everyone. We can give them to people if they're immunosuppressed. We can give them to pregnant women. We can give them to populations, to people that we can't give other vaccines like live vaccines to. The other vaccine um, that was recently approved is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And it has a similar concept or similar type of uh, mechanism of action as the mRNA vaccines, except that instead of that delivering it in that lipid envelope, we take um, a, a, essentially a cold virus, adenovirus, one that, weren't, that uh, is not very common, but it, it, um, your body, it allows the, the genetic material of the COVID-19 virus to be put into that, what we call adenovirus. And so the adenovirus, I like to say, acts sort of like a Trojan horse. It carries that genetic material of the COVID-19 virus into the body, and then again, your own body's machinery makes that spike protein and presents it to your immune system. Now, the beauty of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, much like the messenger RNA vaccine, is that that adenovirus, that carrier virus, doesn't replicate. So this is another vaccine that we can give to people who have compromised immune systems or pregnant women, um, persons living with HIV. Um, we can give these vaccines to... Um, to everyone without worrying about the vaccine itself causing disease. Now, the big, I would say the big key difference between the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the messenger RNA vaccines is that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a single dose. You only need one dose of the vaccine, and that's helpful for people who have difficulty getting out and getting um, to vaccine appointments. Um, we know that we can give one dose and they've completed their vaccination series. Those are the three vaccines that we currently have in the United States. There are two others that um, should be coming up for review by the FDA relatively shortly. One is uh, another adenovirus vaccine, and that's the vaccine that I've been working on, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is a chimpanzee adenovirus vaccine that carries the genetic material of the COVID spike protein, much like um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And again, that vaccine does not replicate, so it can be given to large, uh, many different populations. And then the last one that's coming up for licensure relatively shortly is uh, a vaccine by Novavax. And it is a little bit different in that it is just, um, they've made the spike protein sort of in the laboratory and they're giving the whole spike protein as the vaccine. Both the AstraZeneca and the Novavax vaccine will require two doses. Um, but I think the more vaccines that are coming down the pike, I think, really are going to help us get, get toward what we call enough immunity um, to prevent people from getting sick. And that's really what's important. So I'm very excited about all of the different candidate vaccines and licensed vaccines that we have out there. Dr. Durbin, I thought that was a great summary of what is out there. I feel like our listeners at some point may turn in all of the hour-long calls that they join us for potentially some continuing medical education points. Um, they're all mm -hmm. becoming seasoned physicians and scientists by this point. Uh, but thank you so much <laughs> for that summary. Um, well, my next question, so we have uh, a great summary of the variety and diversity of the vaccines. At the same time, this virus, we, we recognize when we start 
testing the vaccines. Uh, it's on a very a kind of specific type of SARS-CoV-2. But then over time, more variants have come out, more mutations. Can you shed some light into your thoughts on the vaccines that we have currently available and their efficacy against the variants that exist? That's really a great question, Dr. G. And I think, you know, I think what's unfortunate is we hear a single number put out there for different vaccines, 95% efficacy, 87% efficacy, 50%, 60% efficacy. What does it mean? And I think it's really, really important to look at the big picture and what we're hoping these vaccines will accomplish. And that's really preventing people from getting sick enough to go to the hospital, sick enough um, uh, you know, where they can't go to work. That's really our, our key endpoint. We know because the, this virus infects through the nose and things like that, we know that people may have cold-like symptoms from this virus even after vaccination. What we're really trying to do is prevent severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And I bring that up because there's some good news with the variants and there's um, you know, some concern with the variants. And the concern that we've seen with the variants, and this is true for all of the vaccines, the messenger RNA vaccines, the adenovirus vectored vaccines, and the Novavax vaccine, is that the antibodies that you make in response to those vaccines don't recognize particularly the South African variant as well as it recognized the original, um, what we call the Wuhan strain, the first strain that came into the United States and, and the strain that all of the vaccines are based on, um, the antibodies recognize that original virus better than it recognizes the South African variant virus. Um, but the good news is, and I think this is really important to take home, is that um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was actually tested in South Africa. And more than 90% of the cases that were identified during that efficacy trial were of the South African variant. And although we know that antibodies made by the uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine don't recognize that South African variant as well, we know that it was 100% protective against hospitalization and death caused by the South African variant. That is very good news. People did get cold-like symptoms um, even after vaccination, but they didn't get sick enough to go to the hospital. So we know that even though these, these vaccines, the antibodies that you make don't recognize the South African variant as well, I am very confident that they all will provide high efficacy against severe COVID, hospitalized COVID, and death, and that's I think very, very important. You know, and I think, and Dr. Durbin, thank you. I think that provides a lot of peace of mind. Um, and I think it's because the, in this world of science, you know, certain things um, from variances to mutations, um, it may be common knowledge to scientists and doctors who deal with this all the time, but our whole world has become expedited virologists over the last year and learning these new words in real time. There was a fifth grader with our COVID-19 curriculum who goes, I thought mutants only existed in Marvel comics. And I was like, oh, no, they, <laughs> they're, they're out there in, in the real world. So um, I, I truly appreciate it, and I, I think that's going to provide a lot of comfort to our um, listeners. Still going along with this, let me ask you this question. 
Do you think we'll need boosters? And, and can you explain what a booster would, would mean for a vaccine? Sure. So what a booster is, we know that your immune response, whether it's um, developed in response to a natural infection or to a vaccine, um, it's what we call wanes over time, so it weakens over time. And so depending on the different pathogen or the different illness, we give additional shots. So you'll know for your flu shot, you get a flu shot every year, and that's because the flu virus changes it so much. We need, essentially need a new vaccine every year. Um, other vaccines, like your tetanus vaccine, you get a booster dose every 10 years. We don't yet know how long the immunity to these COVID-19 vaccines lasts, but I anticipate that once we get the majority of people in the United States vaccinated um, with one of the COVID-19 vaccines, I do anticipate that we'll probably need a booster dose probably a year after original vaccination. So I anticipate that if we have enough doses of vaccine, we'll start giving booster doses in the fall to try to prevent any sort of um, pop-up of new COVID-19 cases. And there's a couple reasons I think we'll need a booster dose. One, just to make sure that if we've controlled the pandemic, we've controlled the COVID-19 virus, we don't get complacent and we don't let it pop up because we, our immune systems have, um, you know, lessened such that, that the COVID-19 virus can come back. Two, just as Dr. G mentioned, we do have these variant viruses. And these viruses, you know, just like everybody in the world, every species in the world, it's, it's fighting for survival. So the reason it makes those changes, the reason it mutates, is try to give the virus an advantage and survive. And if we're all immune, it wants to change to see if it can still survive. And that's how some of these, um, some of these mutants have just arisen because they can grow faster, they can infect better, they're what we call more fit. They're fitter for survival. Um, and that's how they spread more easily. And we want to make sure that our vaccines are going to be able to induce good um, protection against those. And now that we've seen these variants pop up, like the South African variant, the vaccine manufacturers are already making what I like to call second-generation vaccines. And what they're doing is this, they're just incorporating a vac into their current vaccine. They're incorporating new mRNA or a new adenovirus um, that has the genetic sequence of that South African variant so that you'll actually have um, two different, um, the genetic material from two different strains of the COVID-19 virus in one vaccine. And I anticipate that those will probably be ready in the fall and that um, we'll probably be giving booster doses just to ensure that everybody is very highly protected against the original virus as well as these, um, these mutants, these variant viruses, and to make sure that we don't let COVID sort of come back and spike again in the fall and over the winter when we expect, um, just like we saw last winter, when we expect perhaps another spike. Dr. Durbin, that, thank you. And even for laying out that timeline, I know um, other colleagues, uh, sometimes we have the benefit of just timing, um, but have, uh, have shared exactly what you have said, but the timeline has always been the challenging part. So I think hearing that and what to potentially expect um, very good and very great for our community, just so be able for them to 
prepare their own uh, colleagues and family and friends. My my follow-up to that, if you, so uh, and I, I hope this isn't a curveball, but getting a booster or second-generation vaccine, do you have to get the same one that you had? So if I got a Pfizer, do I have to seek out a Pfizer booster, or can I get a booster from one of the other vaccines, even if it's a different technology? What a fantastic question, and I wish I had a, I wish I had a um, gold star answer for you. I don't. I think we're going to be doing those studies um, planning and doing those studies in, in the interval just to answer that question. You know, right now, the CDC says if you've gotten one mRNA vaccine, so if you got Pfizer, you got Moderna, and you don't know which one you got or the one that you got is not available, you can get your second dose with the other mRNA vaccine. And I think we're going to see with different studies that that likely um, that can even broaden, for instance, if we do give these booster doses. Um, so I, I, you know, I think that's fairly easy. What we don't know so much is if we're mixing platforms. So if you got a messenger RNA vaccine, can you get an adenovirus vectored vaccine and vice versa? Um, they are doing those studies right now that it, in England, some of the, that work has already started. So I think we're going to get some good answers on this. I will say that from my experience in vaccines, we've used um, we've used a strategy which we call prime boost, which has done exactly that. We give one type of vaccine as our prime, and we come back and we give a second type of vaccine as a boost. So that type of strategy is not new to vaccinology, but it hasn't ever been um, tested like we have in a phase three trial or approved um, approved by FDA with the one exception, and, and um, I don't know if, if your listeners um, are uh, um, the age of your listeners, but when I was young, we used to get something called an oral, oral polio vaccine, and then in the 70s and 80s, the United States changed to an inactivated vaccine for different reasons. But there is some strategy is in, in, when we were making that transition, what we did is gave, um, we would give inactivated followed by oral or oral followed by inactivated. And that's a similar, two different platforms, Prime Boost, that worked very well. So we do have some experience with that. I think um, a lot of it will depend upon how much vaccine is available and what the situation looks like. I, I think from a vaccination standpoint, it certainly is something that can be done but needs to be tested, mostly for safety and to ensure that we're getting the best immune response and that if we combine them in the wrong order or the wrong platform, we don't lessen the immune response. Thank you, Dr. Durbin. And one of the things I think our listeners are very, very familiar with hearing over the last year has been, and then they say this in a, in a loving, professional way, we don't know. Um, you know, uh, I think our listeners recognize it's a whole new disease and the vaccines are new. Um, if you know Dr. Zettelman, uh, one of his catchphrases early on in the show um, was, what I'm saying to you now may be wrong even by this afternoon. Um, right. Just, that's just the pace of science. So no worries, Dr. Derman. I, I think we can just take peace of mind knowing that those studies are happening. I, Wonderful. I have, one last, I have one last question, and I know Kimberly is at the edge of our seat. We're getting a lot of community questions come in. And so you, you brought up age, so let's go to a different age group, uh, younger. 
Do you have a sense of the time frame for pediatric vaccines, vaccines available for children? And a follow-up to that, will that vaccine be available for all age groups of kids, or do they tend to be kind of sliced and diced into different age groups for pediatrics? That's a great question as well. So I will say I think um, we're going to have the Pfizer vaccine available for 12 to 16-year-olds relative, I think, early summer, late spring, early summer, those trials. Um, in that age group has been fully enrolled, and I think they're looking at the data, looking at safety and how well the immune response um, in those kids uh, responds to the vaccine. Pfizer is, is ahead of the other companies. There's no doubt about that. Um, Moderna has started their, their studies. I think for all age kids down to at least a year, I think we're going to see those vaccinations starting in the fall. I think we'll have safety and immunogenicity data in kids down to at least one year for the mRNA vaccines, um, for the J&J vaccine, and hopefully for AstraZeneca as well. They're doing, AstraZeneca is doing a lot of their trials um, in the UK and Europe and starting, hoping to start the, the, um, the studies in children very soon. So all of the companies have plans to do pediatric studies. Some of the companies are going down to as young as shortly after birth. Um, others are stopping around one year of age. A lot of it will depend. They have to do different dose ranging to make sure with uh, smaller kids that we don't give too much vaccine. We want to make sure that we give the appropriate amount and don't cause too many side effects in the kids. So I think the good news is that all of the manufacturers are looking at either, either started or are planning to start pediatric trials very soon. And I believe that we will start uh, immunization of kids in the fall, which is very exciting. Excellent. Dr. Durbin, thank you so much. Again, with the, with the timelines, we appreciate it because I know our listeners are actively writing this down in order to share with their families. So thank you. Kimberly, my friend, I know you're manning the emails. Are you uh, ready for uh, to relay some uh, of these great community questions to Dr. Durbin? I am. Thank you, Dr. G, and thank you, Dr. Durbin, for sharing such great information already. Um, so our first question from the community is, if you've never been tested, is it necessary or advisable to get test or tested after you've been fully vaccinated? And if so, how soon after? That's a great question. So um, if you have never been tested, you really don't need to be tested after you've received two doses of the vaccine. And the reason for that is we know from our early studies that these um, vaccines were highly, highly effective um, in everyone. So when they looked at different, let me back up a little bit, um, for, for the vast majority of people. So in these clinical trials, they measured antibody titers in people um, from 18 years of age up to older than 70. And for these vaccines, when people completed their two-dose series for the mRNA vaccines and the AstraZeneca um, and the single-dose series for the Johnson & Johnson, everybody developed antibodies after completion of the, the vaccination series. Now, we have not studied these vaccines thoroughly in people with um, highly immunosuppressive conditions. So, for instance, solid organ transplant patients, that sort of thing. So um, I think if 
if people are concerned that they may not have had a good immune response because they have um, certain conditions that require very highly immunosuppressive therapy, that may be a reason to get tested. However, just routine testing to see if they've responded to the vaccine is really not necessary. These are some of the most highly effective vaccines that we have seen. Great. Thank you, Dr. Durbin. And, you know, the second part of their question makes me think um, that there may be some belief that there is part of the virus within the vaccine because they think that the test, if they were to get a test um, shortly after being vaccinated, that it would test positive because of the vaccination. Can you clarify? I see. I see. I see. So we have different tests that we do. So when we test for the virus to see if people are infected with the virus, we um, do a nasal pharyngeal swab and we test for the virus um, uh, genetic material by PCR. And I think that's where the question is coming from, meaning because we have the genetic material of the spike protein in these vaccines, will you test positive? Um, by a PCR test? And the answer is no, you will not. Um, the way these vaccines are made and the way these vaccines uh, work in your body does not, the, the COVID test that we have now to test for SARS-CoV-2 virus does not pick up the vaccine. So you will not test positive. If later on you have an antibody test, then you may test positive because your body is making antibodies to the spike protein. So if the antibody test is done to the spike protein, then you will test positive, but not for the genetic material for the virus. I appreciate that clarification. Thank you. Um, so the next question is that they partially heard from a physician on TV about postponing the second vaccine shot to be given 12 weeks after the first shot. Is there any truth to that? So um, the CDC has said that you can postpone the second dose of the mRNA vaccines um, up to eight weeks beyond the, um, beyond the original time, so a total of 12 weeks. The reason for that um, there was a lot of discussion early on with rollout of these vaccines, when, and we still don't really have enough doses to vaccinate everybody right now. And there was some discussion on, well, if we postpone that second dose, we can give more people the first dose. So the thing to keep in mind is that during our studies, we only tested a three-week or a four-week interval between the two doses. We didn't test longer. So we don't really know the effect of that uh, increase in time between the two doses. We don't know what that will do. Now, we do know that the first dose of vaccine for uh, the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine does induce good protection for several weeks. So we know that efficacy following the first dose to just before the second dose, given at three to four weeks, was 85 to 90%. So we know you'll be protected following that first dose. We don't know how long that protection will last. And we know that your antibodies go up with the second dose. So that is why CDC said, yes, you can delay 
the interval if you have to. You know, if somebody, for whatever reason, can't get the second dose on time or you don't have enough vaccine, you can delay that second dose. It's not optimal to do that only because we don't have data for exactly how long you can delay that second dose, and we want to make sure that you don't miss that second dose. But CDC has given guidance that you can delay that second dose eight weeks. Thank you so much. So the next question is, what are the concerns regarding AstraZeneca vaccine, and is there still a concern regarding blood clots? That's a great question, too. So I think what's important to note is that the AstraZeneca vaccine has been given to about 17 million people so far. It's been given to a lot of people throughout the UK, Europe, and Asia. And when we do these trials, um, we enroll, all of these trials enrolled about 30,000 people. In the AstraZeneca trial here in the United States, 20,000 people got vaccine and 10,000 people got placebo. That means that we're going to identify um, different what we call side effects or adverse events that would occur at a rate of more than one per 20,000 people. But when we roll out vaccine, we're giving it to millions of people and we're always doing safety follow-up to see. So there are things that will be reported um, following a vaccine rollout. And one of the first things that we do, and we did this with the mRNA vaccines too, there were some concerns about low platelet counts or about allergic reactions. And we always look and we see, say, okay, how many cases of this are we seeing? So with AstraZeneca, how many cases of blood clots are we seeing in, in people who were vaccinated? And how does that compare with what we generally see in the public every single day? And if you look at blood clots, um, blood clotting problems just here in the United States, what we see generally every day is about 10 to 20 cases of that. And what was happening in the AstraZeneca trial was far below that. So right now there's no evidence that the vaccine itself is causing these. They're, they're, um, you know, they, they reviewed all of the data in Europe and said the vaccine is safe, um, we can't say for sure that it's not related to the vaccine, and that's likely because we don't have another cause that we can specifically cite. But I think that the, current, the concerns have really been, um, should be allayed because of that or reduced because um, we know that the cases that are occurring are less than we would expect to see every day without any type of vaccination. And part of the problem, I think it's important to know that when events happen every day um, and you happen to be vaccinated a day before or three days before or five days before, it's hard to say whether or not vaccination was related to that. That event may have happened whether you were vaccinated or not, but we won't ever know. So that's why we continue to collect data on all of these vaccines, and we're collecting data on the mRNA vaccine, we're collecting data on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and people are collecting data on um, all of the vaccines that are being used around the world. And I think that's really going to give us um, an excellent, excellent ability to really sift through and see if there are any safety concerns with any of these vaccines. Thank you so much. So um, the next one really um, is more of concerns that maybe you could address about, you know, how COVID has affected several European countries. 
um, France heading into another um, month-long limited lockdown. Um, six new cases of COVID-19 have cropped up in the Chinese government reports, as this person mentioned. So do you have any concerns about the U.S. going into another lockdown? Well, and I think, you know, I think what's really um, unfortunate, and this was brought up with uh, when some of the European countries held the AstraZeneca vaccine, even though it was just for a few days, um, the, the biggest way we are going to prevent additional outbreaks and future lockdowns is to vaccinate as many people as we possibly can, as quickly as we possibly can. And, and Europe, unfortunately, has had um, a very slow rollout of vaccine, which is, which is contributing to the outbreaks that they're seeing. Um, the U.S., we've been very fortunate, very fortunate in that we've had access. We have access to three vaccines now. Um, two vaccines, as I said earlier, are likely going to go before the FDA in the next month or so, and we'll likely have two additional vaccines to help with our, our vaccine rollout. Um, the best way to prevent COVID and, and to get us out of, this, um, out of this pandemic is vaccination, and not just vaccination here in the United States, but everywhere around the world. And that, that brings up a whole other, uh, I think, very um, important um, issue to talk about, and that's vaccine access to the rest of the world. We're fortunate in the U.S. that we have enough vaccine, but globally, many, 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 many countries do not have access to any vaccine, and that is really problematic. Uh, Dr. Gerben, sorry, I, I, a rookie mistake. I was trying to say oh. that's really good to know, but then I, I couldn't unmute myself fast enough. Um, and <laughs> I think that was something that um, is important to recognize that uh, we're all in, I mean, it's a point that we've been trying to make. That's what I was uh, trying to allude to. We're in this together, right? This isn't mm -hmm. just a Baltimore issue, a Maryland issue. It's not a U.S. issue. It is everyone's issue. So hearing how we're doing well here. And globally, I think, gives us an understanding of what can we begin to expect because we all need to begin tackling this uh, consistently and cohesively. So, you know, Kimberly and I also, uh, you know, we'll work to make sure our listeners understand how they can even make an impact globally um, with regards to these vaccine accesses. There's some nonprofits that we could uh, tap into and, and talk with as well. But, Kimberly, any other community questions? Uh, how does it look? So um, just a couple that um, I will ask if you can respond directly, but no, I appreciate um, Dr. Durbin's time, and I'm, I'm just wondering if you have any um, closing comments or thoughts you want to share? Well, I do. I mean, I think, you know, this has been, um, I would say, a very um, difficult year for everyone, but a year in which, you know, I think we will, we've all learn so much, so much about ourselves, so much about what we can do, what we're capable of doing. And I think, you know, if there is a silver lining, um, you know, this pandemic has forced us to really evaluate our preparedness. Um, and because I work with vaccines, I'm, I'm thinking specifically around vaccine preparedness and what we can do to improve our process and to um, ensure that if, you know, the next pandemic, the next 
virus, the next whatever comes through, how will we be ready? How will we be able to move any fa even faster? And I think the new technologies around vaccine development um, will benefit us immensely in the future. It's taken us, you know, the good news we all say is, you know, we got from discovering a new virus to having vaccines available under emergency use authorization in less than a year, which is fantastic. But, you know, we still trying to get enough vaccine to everybody, we're not moving fast enough. So I think where we're going to need to work in the future is how can we improve that any, even more? How can we have vaccines, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, once we identify the pathogen, make the vaccine, ensure that we can produce it fast enough and get it to everyone, again, not just in this country, but throughout the world even more quickly so that we don't, you know, have to spend a year without hugging our loved ones, without seeing our grandchildren and all of that. So, you know, I think we've learned a tremendous amount. I hope that we truly take that lesson and use it to help us even in the future. Dr. Durbin, those were amazingly uh, powerful words to close on. I think there's a lot that hopefully we'll learn and prepare, not just for the next time, but also for many generations to come. Um, mm -hmm. my, my parents made a point to remind me that their generations practice in school hiding under desks in case a um, nuclear bomb would fall. And so that level of preparation for the worst uh, it can be done in a way that is allowing people to feel comfortable without the panic sometimes of just uh, upending kind of life. And I, I think those words are powerful to say pre preparation, both from distribution to just getting the public to understand that next time this comes, kind of like a fire drill to some extent, this is what we'll have to be able to do as we consider escalation or not. So great words, Dr. Durbin, um, oh, thank for all you. of us. Kimberly, over to you, my friend, for closing comments before we transition to our prayer. Yes, and again, Dr. Durbin, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, very much appreciated all the information that you shared with our community. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. So before I turn the call over to Reverend Johnson, please join us again for our next COVID-19 Community Partners Call on Friday, March 26th at 11 a.m. Our guest speakers will be Dr. Zishan Siddiqui and James Zeke, who will discuss vaccinations at the Baltimore City Convention Center. Now, for those who would like to stay on the call, Reverend Johnson will offer closing thoughts and a prayer. Reverend Johnson? Thank you, Kimberly. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes. Good morning. Good morning. And so thank you again, Kimberly, and thank you, Dr. Durbin and Dr. G, for, um, again, as always, the great information that you share and for the great care that you have for uh, the community and the work that you're doing in the community uh, is very much appreciated. And so as we close uh, today, we recognize that tomorrow marks the spring equinox. And the equinoxes happen in March and September of each year. These are the days when the sun is exactly above the equator, which makes day and night of equal length. This will also mark the second spring of the COVID-19 pandemic. As spring arrived one year ago, it was often difficult to find hope as infections spiked deaths mounted, and the thought of vaccines and cures seemed more fantasy than fact. But today, as we enter a new season of spring, we do so with renewed hope for new life. 
life-enhancing hugs with our parents, children, and grandchildren, and life-sustaining fellowship with other family and friends outside of our bubble, which perhaps we took for granted in the past, will soon once again be a way of life. But just as we must be patient at the onset of spring, allowing flowers to first bud, then bloom, then blossom into their full beauty in due time, we must also, as we anticipate the cessation of COVID-19's effects, patiently follow proper processes and procedures such as vaccinations and continued masking, hand hygiene, and limited gatherings for now so that we can bud, bloom, and fully blossom to the beauty of new and abundant life uh, in the near future. And so let us pray. God of the universe, called by many names, who engineers seasonal change and causes flowers to bud, bloom, and blossom anew. We thank you for the great hope that each new spring inspires, as well as the hope inspired by the discovery of vaccines against the COVID-19 virus. We admit, O oh God, that we are often impatient and anxious to do what we want, when we want, and how we want. Grant, Lord God, that despite the devastation caused by this most recent pandemic, we as humans have learned lessons of gratitude, appreciation for each other, and greater patience. Help us now to do the right things in the right ways and at the right time so as to preserve life and soon to allow everyone to experience and enjoy life in all of its beauty and abundance. Let hope, goodwill, and joy spring eternal in each of us in your life-giving and sustaining name, we pray. Amen. Thank you, Reverend Johnson, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a great weekend. Stay safe and be well. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible by the Johns Hopkins Bayview Healthy Community Partnership, its Department of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Medicine for the Greater Good, and the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research.